If you uh, have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. <clears throat> In the first five chapters of Romans, <clears throat> we looked at in subsequent weeks uh, <clears throat> how, um, how, how we can reconcile a, a relationship with God when we're not righteous. You know, and Paul deals with this topic, this dilemma. How can we have a relationship with God who's holy and righteous and we're unrighteous? And so that's what he deals with in chapters 1 through 5, um, 5, 8, for example. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Romans 6, a famous passage, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> he gives us this gift. In other words, uh, first five chapters, he deals with how we had sin in our account. Think of your savings account, for example. And, and it's jam-packed, filled with sin. You know, it's just full of sin. Or the bank account of our hearts. And uh, God says, I'm going to take that, remove that sin from your bank account, and put it into my account. And I'm going to furthermore take what's in my account, perfect righteousness, I'm going to place it in your account. And that's what transpired in the cross. He took our sin upon himself, and in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. And so because we've been made righteous through Christ's death and resurrection, we can have relationship with a holy and perfect God. And then he moves on to chapters 6 through 8, where Paul addresses another dilemma. If indeed I've been saved and forgiven and righteous, made righteous in God's sight, then why in the heck do I still struggle with sin? If I'm dead to sin, why do I still struggle with it? Like the sin of bitterness or the sin of unforgiveness, or insecurity, or fear, or the sin of lust and addiction, or selfishness, or just an inconsistent walk with the Lord. Why do I still struggle on this path? In chapter 7, Paul describes his inner conflict that he had dealt with, a conflict that we experience as well. In verse 15 of 7, I do not understand what I do, Paul writes. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, that's what I do. And if I do what I, if I do, what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is good as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. We can all identify with Paul's struggle because we struggle in the same way. So how do we live in victory over sin so that sin no longer has mastery over us or control? And Pastor Jeremy dealt with this last week as he unpacked chapter 6 theologically for us. I'm going to um, add some practicality today by looking at how, what steps can we take um, to overcome sin in chapters 6, 7, and 8. We know we've been set free. What steps must we take? Four steps I saw in these three three chapters. First step is, uh, comes from chapter 6 again. We need to know the truth of who we are in Christ. And this is what Jeremy uh, covered last week. We need to know who we are in Christ. In verse 3, Paul says, and don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and were raised to new life in him? Don't you know that? And don't you know in verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead to life, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7, 
Do you not know, brothers and sisters? So he goes on and on, saying, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? We need to know the truth of who we are. Like a, a child overheard a crowd in the distance yelling, the king is dead! Long live King Arthur! And the child thought, wait, how, if the king is dead, how can he live long? Wait, he can't be dead and alive at the same time. So this poor child was confused, but what he did not know is the former king, King Bob died, and then King Arthur took over. So they're cheering on the new king. The old is gone. He cannot be resurrected again because he's dead. And the new king is alive and well, and he's reigning as king. Our old self has died, and we cannot come back to life. Chapter 6 reminds us. Our new self is born. We're born again. We are new creations in Christ. Some mistakenly compare our old and new natures like two dogs at war within us. They're fighting, and it's like, oh man, I'm fighting my sin nature, but I got a, a godly nature too, and they're at war. But that would not be accurate um, because the sin nature is dead. Um, and they think if you feed, whatever dog you feed will take over, right? Well, that's not accurate because spiritually speaking, our sin nature is dead. It cannot come back to life again. It would be as if our dog died and we thought, oh man, oh, I found Mickey on the floor like I did when I was a senior in high school. And he was staring at me and he was Mickey and, and he, was, he was gone. So what did I do? I went downstairs, got a T-bone steak, and I threw it to Mickey. It did nothing for Mickey, because he was gone. He was dead. Nothing I could do could raise him from the dead. And so I bought a new dog, Sparky. So it goes with us. When we receive Christ, the old nature is gone and the new has come. And in, in chapter 6, verse 6 again, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And then we move to chapter 7 where Paul illustrates this principle in the illustration of marriage. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law... A married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. This section is not about marriage. It's about Paul using marriage illustration to relate about the law here. So we shouldn't take that out of context. But we are bound by the law if we're bound to our spouse. And let me say that again. We're bound by law to our spouse until death do us part. And if, if our spouse should die, then we'd be free to remarry someone else. In verse 4, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law of sin and death through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So Paul is, is saying in our, our old nature, 
in our old nature. We were bound, we were married to the law of sin and death. We were married to the written code of the Old Testament as well. You know, the Ten Commandments. And this is what we used to try to become more righteous. We have to obey these do's and don'ts. We have to obey all of these commands and laws. And if we obey them, we'll try to become more, more righteous. But it didn't work. We failed time and time again. We could never measure up to the demands of the perfect law. Our disobedience only led to death. It would be like living with Mr. Perfect, who is perfect in every way. He never makes a mistake. He never has a bad day. He's always on time. But he expects the same from you. When you mess up, and you will and you do, then he will be sure to let you know. Perfection is the only acceptable standard in his mind. Moreover, if you ask him for help, the law turns a cold shoulder, and he will offer no help at all. That's what the law does. It gives us the perfect standard, but we never measure up, and it never helps us to become more righteous. Verse 15 of chapter 7, Paul says then, For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. This morning I woke up with this thought in my mind. I don't know if this will play out or not, this example, but it's sort of like the, the traffic citation that I got when we went to Chicago for our midwinter uh, covenant pastors meeting. And we got off on the exit where the hotel was, and it was late at night. There was no traffic. And so I didn't come to a complete stop because I went right and, you know, just kind of drifted through. I slowed down. I know it was against the law legally, but there was no traffic. And, and then we turned into the hotel. What I did not know was that there, there was a camera there. And so a couple of weeks later, I got the citation, the a mail from Cook County, Chicago, for like $160 because I rolled through this stop sign. The letter of the law had caught me. And then furthermore, I looked up the video online, and sure enough, there was my car. You idiot, stop, stop. And I didn't. So $160 mistake, right? <clears throat> it would almost be like if these new cars that we're purchasing, they require computers. Every new car would require a computer that would, there's Tony, thank you, my man. Appreciate it. Um, I thought Tony was going to come up here and tell me your time is up. Okay, all right, mute it. Um, it'd be like this computer, which would re uh, record every traffic violation that you did. Everyone, if you go half a mile over the speed limit anywhere, the computer registers it and it forwards it to the traffic office and you get a citation. Just a half a mile, or even just a touch over the speed limit. Or, or if you happen to touch the center line, then, or, or whatever, then you get a citation. Or if you fail to use your turning signal, turning in your driveway, you get a citation. Or if you're backing out and you're putting the seatbelt on, like my wife always does, no, like I do it all the time, um, uh, then you get a citation because your car is moving without a seatbelt. So on and on, you'd have all these citations coming daily into your mail. None of us could afford to own a car or drive, probably, because the letter of the law will, will kill us. Uh, verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Not only does 
God's perfect and righteous law reveal our sin, it arouses our sin. It arouses it. I was at uh, um, this museum in Kansas City this last week in uh, the Arabia, Steamboat Arabia, and I was wandering down there. We had some time off on our mission trip, and I came across a sign that says, Do not lean or point over the counter. Alarm will sound and police will be summoned. I stood there for about three minutes thinking, where could I hide when I put my arm over this thing? Where can I, in case it does ring? And I literally wanted so bad to put my arm over that to see if it would ring. Because that's what the law does. It arouses our sin nature. We want to do the very opposite thing. And that's what Paul is saying in chapter 7. We need a different law to overcome our sin, and that would be the law of the Spirit. Chapter 8, the law of the Spirit. It's not enough to know the truth. We must believe the truth. In chapter 8, verse 11, Paul writes, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Because Jesus died on the cross, he rose again. Paul says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and And you've been raised to a new life. Count means to conclude, to reckon, to bank on it. You must believe it, not just know it in your head. Believe it. Just one illustration for this point, and then I'll move on. A scientific researcher chose 10 volunteers uh, to to come to the office, and he paid them uh, to apply a scar, a fake scar, on their faces. He did this one person at a time, day after day. And, and then he instructed them to go into the waiting room of the medical facility and just sit there, and you're to observe how people will react to this ugly scar on your face. Okay, easy enough. But before he sent them out into the room, he called each one back um, beforehand and said, with the excuse of putting some powder on there to, you know, to make it stand out more, he... He, um, he removed the scar without the people knowing it. So essentially, they thought they had a scar on their face. They went out to the waiting room, and they didn't have a scar on their face. But after the experiment, all 10 of them came back, and they were asked to share their conclusion and their observations. And all 10 of them reported the same thing, that the people stared at them, the people were rude, they shunned them, and they grimaced, even though they didn't have a scar on their face, because they believed it. They believe the lie. We can know the truth and believe the lie. We need to believe the truth. We need to reckon it, conclude that it's true. Um, Otherwise, we'll walk in defeat. Well, if we know the truth and believe the truth, then why do we still struggle with sin? Even though we're dead to sin, sin is not dead to us. Sin is very much alive in the world, in Satan, in the worldly systems, that are contrary to God, these are very much alive, tempting us and deceiving us, trying to control us. We're dead to sin's control over us, but sin is not dead to us. In Romans 7, 14, we know that the law is spiritual. It's a good thing. You know, the Ten Commandments are great things, but I am unspiritual. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. 
Some versions, the NIV and the New Living Translation get this wrong. They translate it in my sinful nature. All other translations translate it flesh. The word is sarx or sarcus. In the Greek, it means flesh. And so Paul makes a a distinction between our sinful nature and our flesh. Our sinful nature has been crucified with Christ on the cross. It no longer lives. But our flesh... We're, we still have this flesh, this part that we won't take with us to eternity. What is the flesh? The flesh is not literally this stuff that we can pinch. The flesh, rather, is our sinful habits and our patterns that we've developed over the years when we're seeking to meet our needs independent of God. It's the self-life. You know, I can do this. You know, I've I got a bank account. I've got a family. I've got a job. I've got food on my table. I, can, I really don't need God. Even as a born-again, spirit-led Christian, I can live my life in the flesh, according to the flesh. Even though the sinful nature is dead, I can live by the flesh. Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. I, he sang that song. When we're born again spiritually, nobody came in and deleted the button in our Uh, sinful memories or habits or thought patterns that were lodged in our flesh through the years of living independent from God before we were a Christian. They continue. It's sort of like in the Navy when sailors are on the ship and and their officer was really cruel and mean and unfair and demanding and and these these, sailors these Navy, what are they called? Sailors. They were, they were intimidated by their captain or by their skipper. They were just really intimidated. Every time he came around, they, they tensed up and they dared not move and hardly even breathe for fear that he would do the unpredictable. But overnight, this skipper was removed from his office and he was transferred and a new skipper came, a new boss in the morning. So the, the sailors came out and they stood in line And the new skipper came and they tensed up again because they had had months being trained under the old skipper. What they didn't know was the new skipper was really kind and relational and caring and and generous. And uh, they didn't know that, but it took them weeks and weeks to grow into that fact, to recondition their minds and their patterns. And that's what God asks us to do before Christ. We're in our sinful nature. After Christ, we received a new Uh, a new nature, but our sinful flesh habits remained. Now we have to put off those sinful flesh habits and put on the Spirit of God in obedience. For example, I can preach and I can teach and I can serve and I can worship and I can relate to others as a pastor with the Spirit of God living in me. I can do so in the flesh. This sermon could be all by my intellect, backed up with no prayer, no dependence on the Spirit, and someone might say, hey, you did a good job today, but it'll have zero effect for God and his kingdom because it's done in the flesh. 7.15, I do not understand what I do. I do not understand. Did you notice, if you read read through the chapter 7, you would notice the word I. Paul uses the, the pronoun I, 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 33 different times because he's describing his life lived according to the flesh on his own strength. Not until verse 24 and 25 do we have any mention of the Spirit of God. 
when he writes, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, this I-life, this self-life? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he launches into chapter 8 where he, he explains how this happens. We need to know the truth. We need to believe the truth. And then we need to choose the truth. We need to choose the truth. Choose. Again, back in chapter 6, Paul says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. This word offer is a choice to offer every part of ourselves to God. As believers, we now have the ability to choose between living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. Before we were Christians, we lived according to the flesh and our sinful nature. Now, as believers, we have that choice. Chapter 8, verse 6, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. It's your choice. Are you governed by Romans 7, the law of the flesh, or are you governed by, according to Romans 8, the law of the spirit? In verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. This is a choice, this obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, your self-life, you will die. You won't lose your salvation, but you'll live in defeat spiritually. That's what death means there. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You'll live the life that God intends. But how is our choosing like this any different than living by the law? Choosing right and wrong, good and bad. How is this any different? The last point, it's different by what you depend upon. Are you depending upon yourself and your own morality? Or are you depending upon the Spirit of God, living according to the law of the Spirit? We must rely on the truth. And the truth here is not just a knowledge basis of commands. Here's the truth. See, I got the truth right here. No, the truth is a person. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we depend on the person of Jesus and his living Spirit, then we can walk in victory and overcome sin. Verse 12 again, we're told in verse 13 actually, for if you live according to the flesh, the self-life, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there it is, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then he skips forward to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This word offer means to yield, to present yourself before, to surrender. It, it says, Lord Jesus, help me. I keep messing up and failing. I need your help. Live through me. It's a reliance on the Spirit of, the Spirit of God. It's that great hymn, Take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, Lord, and let them be swift and beautiful to thee. Take my voice, Lord, and let them sing always only for my king. We surrender. We surrender. I need thee every hour. Uh, Ron Hutchcraft says, I don't think we live the Christian life so much as the Christian day. 
This is a surrender to Christ that is renewable every morning, a new dependence. We knew what it was to surrender to Christ when we met him and said, Lord Jesus, take my life. I want to belong to you. I want to know you. I want to become your child. That's the first surrender. But, but we soon forget that life, the Christian life, is a daily surrender to him. And this is the key to our strength. It's one last example. The boy was frustrated. He, he had his, his heart was uh, set on delivering this pumpkin that he picked up at the pumpkin patch to the PM&M pumpkin patch. I think this happened there. No, it didn't. But he picked up this pumpkin. He wanted to take it uh, to the checkout stand all by himself, but he, he couldn't, he couldn't um, pick up the pumpkin. It was too heavy. He couldn't maneuver it, and he got really frustrated sitting there. Um, and so finally he gave up in frustration and defeat. And then his dad approached him, and he knelt down and said, Hey, buddy, what you doing? Can't you move, pick up the pumpkin? He said, No. I can't. And the father asked, well, have you used all of the resources that were available to you? And the boy nodded that he had. And the dad said, I don't think you have, buddy. You haven't asked me to help you. And so he scooped up the son in his arms and the pumpkin at the same time, carried them both to the checkout stand. Seeking to use the law, the do's and don'ts, to overcome our sin is an externalist, doing things on our own. And we will fail time and time again. It only leads to sin and death, Paul says. If we seek to become righteous by obeying the Ten Commandments, you shall, you shall not, you shall, you shall not, the Ten Commandments, we will fail. We have a, a, the Old Testament is filled with the story of Israel who failed over and over again. And we will as well. Living by the law of the Spirit not the flesh, or, not, or even the Old Testament law, living by the law of the Spirit is internal. It's God saying in Ezekiel 36, here's the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will change you, God says. It is God demonstrating what he can do for us and through us when we rely upon him. And we read about that in Romans 8. 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans 8.28, he works all things out for the good. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his son, will he not also graciously give us all things? Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's through him, by his strength. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that he could give his life to us, so that he could live his life through us. So if you find yourself struggling with your sinful flesh, it's a good indication that you're seeking to attain victory on your own in your own strength, by your own, you know, grit. If you can't overcome your, un, your unforgiving attitude or your bitterness, your insecurity or fear, your lust or addiction, your selfishness or inconsistency, then you can know you can overcome it. How? You need to know the truth of 
who you are in Christ. You need to believe the truth. You need to choose God's truth, but you need to do so by relying on God's truth, namely Jesus Christ and his spirit living in and through us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you only command us to do that which you have strengthened us and filled us to do with your spirit because it's your life that we live. I pray, God, that you help this truth sink into our hearts, Lord. It's very elementary, but we so often forget it and try to go it on our own strength. So, Lord Jesus, help us to walk by the Spirit and live according to the law of your Spirit, which is the new covenant. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.